I do think we've seen a McDonaldsizing of worship. Is that a word? <laughs> You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome back to the Worship Review, the podcast which critically and charitably and kindly examines the texts of Christian worship music. My name is Tyler. I am a linguist and I am joined as usual by one and only Colin. Hello, I'm a history professor and I do not endorse kindly in the lead up to our uh, podcast. So I'm not necessarily going to be kind. We'll see. That's yeah. fine. You are free to be unkind. And right. we are joined by one other very special individual. We have Dave Whitcroft from KD Music with us. Hi, Dave. Hi, Tyler. Hi, Colin. Great to be with you guys. It's good yeah, to have Dave. you. How are things up there in Ireland? Um, I'm looking out my window. It's sunny. It's about to rain, as it always is. <laughs> and uh, I think there are a couple of rabbits on my lawn as well, which is really nice. So my understanding is, yeah, it's either raining or about to rain in Ireland. Is that the case? Ish. Yeah, no, we get the occasional remarkable dry sunny spell and okay. scorched lawns, but that's once every three years or so. Okay. Okay. Once every three years, you get some sunshine and, uh, and you regret it afterward because it destroys your lawns. We layer up. Yeah, that's what we do. You're really selling this. <laughs> uh, the grass is always very green. I have a daughter who lives in BC, and after the snow, her lawn is yellow. So yeah. our grass is green all the time. So that's, that's, the, that's the upside. My father spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland, uh, and he said that it was the greenest place that he had ever lived. I mean, he just thought it was incredible how, how green it was. Oh, that's lovely. And uh, I, I've heard Canadians saying it's colder than Canada because it, although the absolute temperature doesn't go way down, um, their air is dry and ours is very damp. So the the yeah. damp gets on your skin and yeah. sucks the In your away. bones. In your bones, yeah. In your yeah, bones. so I used to live in Bristol in the United Kingdom and it's not, it's probably not the same, obviously not the same as Northern Ireland, but it was like that. It was damp, you know, because we got mm-hmm. that uh, Atlantic that cold and damp uh, yes. ocean breeze. And it, it did, it just, it felt tremendously cold, even though it wasn't objectively cold. Yes. Yes. The, uh, yeah, the, the set, the, the perceived temperature, yes. but it's really good for encouraging fireside songwriting and hymn writing <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. If, that, if that's a useful segue for you. Yeah. Can you tell us then Dave, a little bit about what you do there? Um, my day job is commercial property and investment and that sort of stuff, but that bores me stupid. I, uh, I trained as a a youth worker, a youth pastor, and that was my first job. And then, um, uh, switched into the family business and, uh, in church, I've, I've been involved in the one church since we've been married for about 30 years now, Orangefield Presbyterian in East Belfast and, um, love it. You know, like every church, we're a family. We have the odd row, but we, we haven't had a split or anything, which is great. Yeah. And um, it's a church that really is is very keen to look out and reach out and share the gospel with people. And, and it's very hopeful and positive. And we experiment and make mistakes and 
So I've done all sorts of different jobs in there. Kids work, be in charge of that. Uh, the youth work, then then pastoring the, the worship. And we have a team of about uh, 60 musicians and tech team. who 60? Sort of yeah, yeah. When you can include te- include tech and musicians. And they were, so everybody's on once a month just, just to share it out. Dave, that's um, just, that's uh, shockingly large. Uh, w- can I ask just what roughly the sizes of your congregation? Um, well, post-COVID, the numbers have been lower than pre-COVID. Uh-huh. But so a Sunday morning at the minute, we're about 400. Um, okay. Pre-COVID, it was sort of about 550. That's uh, incredible. 500. Um, it would be one of the larger Presbyterian churches, maybe maybe yeah. fifth largest or something, but that's very atypical. Yeah. Usually, usually 200 members, something like that. Wow. Yeah. So you've got between an eighth and a seventh of your church involved in the sound or the music in one way or another. You know, I hadn't thought of that. Um, I, I think we really are due post, post stripping everything back through COVID to uh, put out a, a, a recruit, recruitment drive just to encourage people to use their gifts. It's not that we need people to do a job it's about um, facilitating developing people's gifts so I think we're due that Uh, and I think we like lots of churches we've lent very much towards the band model Mm -hmm. and then you you miss out on I mean the other day we we had the brass guys out for Belfast Marathon at the front of the church and it was just so good to hear brass again and um, so it would be nice to get some strings involved and have Mm -hmm. lots of variety. A brass quintet or something like that? It was just three. Just yeah, three. just Very three. Nice. But yeah, that's more of a brass section with a band singing 90s cheerful worship songs. Yes. So. Okay. Can I ask how you manage 60 different people at, at the church? Like that, that sounds like it would be a full-time undertaking. Well, that, that's quite often the discussion we have on, uh, on elders <laughs> meetings and sessions. Um, we've, it's been the tradition. It's, it's a fairly young church. It was um, when Belfast suburb was expanded after the Second World War. It was a church plant um, in a new housing area. So it's really, no, sorry, after the First World War. So between wars, it's, it's 1936, something like that. Um, and it's always felt like a mission hall where everybody pitched in. So the idea of of professionalizing the music, uh, that's been a long discussion. Uh, we've had musical directors in the past and really appreciated it because, you know, you get tired sometimes, especially if you're doing it in your free time. And I think I'm reaching a point, in, you, if you've ever been involved in, in ministries, which you have, you get you get to the point where you know, mm, I'm past optimal here. You yeah. know, I'm not I'm not quite cooking with all the gas on. And it's somebody else's turn. So I think that's, yeah, we could probably do with somebody else. When that happens, you uh, you start a podcast. That's what we learned. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I'll take your <laughs> advice on that. Great. Well, I, actually, well, I, this is, that's the side gig for me is, is the songwriting. That's, that's where I, yeah, that's where I went. You know, well, I've always done that a bit. Can you tell us? Can you tell us a little bit about the songwriting that you do? Yeah, with, what you see, the Katie, Katie music name is just something really bland for me to hide behind. Um, I, I just don't like the night. I initially didn't like the idea of going Dave Whitcroft. I just, I wanted people to hear the songs and not, you know, draw attention to myself. So so it's uh, it's somewhere between an artist name and a, 
I don't know, a label name or something like that. And it's it's the all the guys I'd meet up with at uh, regional events, um, uh, church conferences and things like that, where we get together and really have fun that way. Um, that Those are the people that you whip into the studio for that. And some of them are so good. So Because uh, there, there is a good culture of music here. Um, it wouldn't be as big as Nashville, Nashville or anywhere like that, but... Um, but it's it's still there's lots of music all over the place. I'm sure that's the same in, in a lot of uh, ordinary America too. So, um, but but yeah. So I, I I came to faith when I was 15, and it really was it really was uh, going from black and white to Technicolor for me. I know that's not everybody's faith journey, but mm-hmm. my my parents had both had um, brain injuries from a road traffic accident. So I was 15 and social services was, there was no care plan really. It was, congratulations, you're alive. Uh, <laughs> and and then I was in the house. My, my sister was away and working and uh, she was older and she pitched in a little bit. So I was stuck in the house with these two people with brain injuries and had come back from boarding school to be in the house with them. And it, it didn't always cope very well. And it was very lively. And, and it was at that point I finally surrendered to God and uh, I felt pursued, which is something you hear and see in, in confessions from people like Augustine or St. Patrick, that sense of God pursuing mm-hmm. them until they finally mm-hmm. give in. That's, that was mm-hmm. my experience of conversion. And it mm-hmm. really was so liberating. Um, the color turned on, the, the purpose, the relief of not running. Um, mm-hmm. And music came. And it's always been the thing that kept me um, sane through dealing with the inevitable turbulence of brain injuries in the house and occasionally guns and having to leave the house and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I've always written music, but because of the, the responsibility for care along as another layer in life, I never really pursued music as, as a career, even though I played in lots of bands. So, mm-hmm. so now the kids are up. You know what this is like, Colin. The kids yeah. are up. There's a bitter breathing space, not having to look after the parents anymore. And it's mm. now's my moment. So that's that's <laughs> why that's why that, you know, thirty years of of songs, I'm working my way through the back catalogue and and co writing yeah. with some great people. So you know, that's really inspiring to hear, Dave, because yeah, I mean I'm s- similar in some respects. Like I've got 20 years of music that I've just not been able to work on. And what yeah. it sounds like you're saying is um, there is a point maybe where you can get to that. So are you, are you working on, are you writing a lot of new music? Are you, yeah. How much are, are you pulling from the back catalog? I mean, what is that like? It's about 50, 50. I'm, I'm looking back through the back catalogs, some of which we recorded at the time and it sounds appalling or, uh, um, or doesn't translate and some mm. of it's mo- moderately timeless you know especially if it's based on something jesus said i just love yeah. zooming right in on those words of his even mm. pia- past the the systematic theology of paul right into the those pithy one-liners that aren't systematic yeah. that jesus came out with to get mm. to the essence of it and mm. when you i think when you're writing something like that that's not going to date or hopefully shouldn't um yeah and uh, and then the co then a lot of it is stuff I've written along the way, f- in and for church. You know, for kids work for, for young adults and teens for congregational worship, in response to a request. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and then more recently co-writing with some of these um, really good musicians that I've met at more regional events. There's a guy, Ian Hanna, who has done a bit of writing with the Gettys before they moved to the States. Mm-hmm. He's a phenomenal um, with with appropriate piano lines and really good conjure melodies. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And so as you are yeah, working with others, uh, some, like you said, regional, local, um, I also wanted to ask about just broader influences. So what sorts of artists are influencing the music that you're writing, both the music that you've written in the past, the music you're writing now? Has there been a change over time? I'd love to hear you talk about your influences. Okay. Um, are you ready for me to blow some dust off here? Uh, <laughs> some of this is going way back, but I, I think, you know, those first, if you've come to faith in your teens and your teens are when you really remember music from most, I think. Yeah, that's right. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So Larry Norman, does anybody remember Larry Norman? I don't know. My no. goodness. So he was a, an American uh, protest singer, songwriter, Christian guy from California and he was considered the grandfather of um, uh, Christian rock but he didn't fit into either the the secular or the Christian scene particularly well and was quirky Uh, but some of his stuff's worth a look Um, Mm. Bruce Coburn another Um, (coughs) singer-songwriter pardon me great Christian folk rock band from the 90s Um, Iona some of them Mm -hmm. from here and and oh Tyler's nodding you've heard of Iona Iona yeah. Uh, well, the the guy on uh, there's a song we put out um, in October, and I got the guy, the drummer out of Iona, a guy called Terrell Bryant, who he's played with Led Zeppelin guys and all sorts of yeah. stuff. And so he drummed on that, and that was great. Um, and they they did a great thing on the Book of Kells, a musical interpretation of the Book of Kells. That was lovely. That's uh, it's not actually on streaming platforms. There's some copyright issue. But I, uh, Book of Cows by Iona is really worth getting. The Chieftains were a, a, an Irish um, folk band way back that uh, did stuff with Van Morrison and all. There was a guy, Davy Spillane, who was a, a, an Illian pipe player. And he did sort okay. of pop Illian pipe stuff. Um, you two, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Ray Charles, Harry Connick Jr. I love all that sort right. of orchestral stuff. Sting, I really like the way Sting um, writes story and does weird musical bits. I like weird doing weird, just because it gets people people's attentions. Yeah. I love Santana, Brian Setzer, sure. Quincy Jones, and more recently, I really love that um, New York band Wolfpack. Hmm. If you come come across them, no, oh dear. And have you heard of J- Jacob Collier? I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. This is all good. Assignments. This is a homework for all of us to go but and check out some of this. Go, go and look up, look up Jacob Collier. He's, he's a kid who um, was brought up in one of those um, cathedral choir, choir schools in London. Hmm. And he's like the, the new Mozart. Mm-hmm. He's unbelievable. Um, it, it's more, not in terms of melody, but in terms of all that polyphonic stuff. Mm-hmm. You can just layer 30 layers of harmony in his head and just slap it all down and plays every instrument um, uh, prodigiously. So mm. Jacob Collier, go check him out. He's, okay. Yeah, but just don't listen to too much at once, you know. Okay. 
<laughs> Good tip. Wow, Dave, that's amazing. <laughs> and the Gettys, of course. Yeah. Oh, in terms of church, actually, they've done a really good job. You know, they they've done a really good job. They and Shane and Shane. You know, some there are a lot. There's a lot of really good Christian music out there as well. And it, mm. but it's constrained because obviously it's it's for the your lead singer in that situation is a congregation. So you got to pitch the pace a bit slower. You can't yeah. vary, it, vary it so much. Can you explain that a little bit more? What do you mean by your lead singers in the congregation? Oh, well, I, I've got to the stage, I'm really sick of the notion of a Christian artist. Uh, I, I just think, oh, sorry, a worship artist, not a Christian artist. I think worship, I, I mean, the, there's a, a guy in our congregation who is usually the contrary voice. Um, and I love him, and he's a brilliant pianist, and, but he drives me mad. I, he knows it's okay for me to say this. Yeah, yeah, sure. But but I usually end up agreeing with him about six months after he makes a point. Um, <laughs> and, and, and one of his points is, you know, it would be better if the band wasn't on stage. If the band, you know, and those Anglican churches used to have a choir up at the back, and they just made the sound, and you weren't looking at them. Yeah. And I, I just think... Um, the, the the worship music that moves me most is when, as a musician, you're playing and suddenly you sit back a gear and you realize the congregation is leading the worship. Mm -hmm. You've um, you've given it a jump start and then mm -hmm. it's driving itself. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's not about it's not about the musicians. It's about the church mm. um, and the church is the lead singer singing to God. So that's, I think you've, you've done your job well. If one of our youngest worship leaders at a training session said, so, you know, that, that way, um, John the Baptist said, um, I must decrease so that he can increase. How do we do that as worship leaders? And we all looked around each the room at each other and didn't know the answer. We hadn't thought mm. about it. Hadn't thought about it. Mm. So, uh, that's a good place to aim, I think. I don't mm. know what you think about that, but. I have to say, I really, I had never thought of it as uh, an automobile <laughs> before, but I have to say, I, I actually like this image where for a car, of course, you need an external power supply initially, like the battery, and it gets the motor running. But then once it's running, you have a belt that turns the alternator over, which is, you know, 99% of the energy consumed by the car is going to be, you know, through, through that alternator's power. So I had not thought about it that way, but I actually kind of like that. Um, but this is, this is something that I think every, every person who's ever led the music in a church um, knows there's some interplay tension, possibly. Um, it's, it's not a tug of war necessarily, it certainly could be, um, but there's interplay between what you're doing with your instrument or your voice, maybe the tempo you're going at, um, and what tempo, say, the congregation wants to be doing on a given Sunday. Um, and it's, it's easy to say, I think, as a musician, oh, they're going so slow, they need to pick it up, why are they always so slow? Um, but I think, and, and perhaps there's some senses in which that would be a fair um, analysis, like if the congregation continually slowed down or something, you might need to have a conversation. But on the other hand, what if what if you need to slow down so that they can sing it more comfortably? I don't think that um, I 
I don't know if, if a lot of music directors and music leaders are thinking about um, things in those terms. So it's, it's interesting. And uh, of course, also having the, having the musicians out of view, uh, like in a choir loft or something like that, out of sight, um, not necessarily out of mind, um, is not something that uh, at least American or American-influenced evangelical churches are known for, but it, it may do well it may suit them well to perhaps remove some of the image centeredness of, of worship leading and not to go on too much of a, of a tangent here, but I led worship recently at a church. Um, and the, one of the volunteers just right before the service came up and said, Hey, put a smile on because um, you're going to be the face of, of this church to, to visitors when they come in. And I thought to myself, that's kind of a heavy burden you just put on me. Um, and certainly I, I don't scowl or anything. Like I don't have a resting face, which is grumpy or anything like that. But I thought, what if I feel contemplative or what if I feel um, neutral and maybe not uh, chipper this morning? What do I do with that? Um, so there's there's always this back and forth going on. So, um, Dave, I have a question so, sort of about your philosophy of, of ministry as a, as a music, um, it's safe to say music minister, uh, yeah, right? Would you yeah, say? Elder, minister, yeah. Are you yeah, an so elder? I saw, I was chair of the worship subgroup of session and and oh, if, if this is a Presbyterian context, so do you divide between uh, ruling elders and teaching elders? So would you be a ruling elder? Uh, yes, yes. Okay. So the, the pastor would be a teaching elder yeah. who's appointed by presbytery. Yeah. And then we're ruling elders, but uh, and there's real life as well, of course, yeah. So in, in the mix of those dynamics. Our audience is pretty broad in terms of their church background, so it's always good to point out some of those. Yeah. Yeah, thanks to them, sure. Yeah. So as an elder slash presbyter slash overseer slash episcopat, <laughs> presbyter um, bishop, <laughs> so uh, how then do you personally go about planning, not, the, not necessarily the 60 volunteers that you've got, um, but actually the music on a given Sunday, how do you navigate? Uh, what songs are we going to do? When are we going to do them? How are we going to do them? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. How do you go about that? Yeah, I mean, every church, whether it's liturgical or not, Presbyterians think they're not liturgical, but they really are. And everybody is, has a, a liturgy or a, a habit um, or a vehicle for worship. Um, in, in our case, we um, we have an, an acronym that's really based around the Lord's Prayer, you know, that acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Uh, we've, of course, changed it locally to cactus and barb. <laughs> So cactus barb. So cactus is for a Sunday morning. So you have a call to worship. Is C. You have adoration, which is a time of three or four times of songs of worship in a block. We because we're a bit more contemporary, we do like that flow, sort of ten fifteen minutes of of a time of worship. Um, and then con, a con, prayer of confessions become really important for us uh, in the mix. And then Thanksgiving is a response to that. And then the U.S. of cactus is just a reminder to us, use scripture. I think we've all been in a church where somebody's had a, a thought 
as they've driven to church and it becomes a 20 minute monologue instead of a couple of verses from a psalm or something to inspire people to lift their focus to God. So cactus, call to worship, adoration, confession, thanks. Use scripture. And then for, for choosing songs for our corpus or our hymn book, if you like, um, I think, like a lot of people, I think we discovered the Pandora's box of song select. Um, and those people who grew up with a hymn book, it was very constraining, but at least it defined a shared experience. Um, 70,000 songs on song select is both wonderful and terrifying. Um, so if you dip into that as your hymn book, you have to have something, some other way of defining your body of work. So, um, when we're choosing songs for the church, maybe about eight new songs a year. Um, our acronym is BARB, then Cactus and BARB. Um, biblical, is it biblical? Is it accessible for all generations to sing? You know, um, Is there at least something in it? It doesn't all have to be simple, but is there at least something in it that everybody can sing? Accessible includes it being musically accessible. You know, I The worship artist's tendency towards an eight-minute... Um, Bohemian Rhapsody style experience with three or four variations on a bridge mm. just leaves the congregation cold. Yeah, um, and I know people will say, "Well, I sing that and I enjoy it," but when you look at them, they're not really singing it; they're chipping in on the bits they know, Correct. and then they're trusting the artist to lead them, and that's that's something akin to be a being a shamanistic spirit guide or something mm -hmm. who you rely upon. Um, I'm being really harsh there. I could have, maybe I could have reeled that in a bit, but I think that's the analogy. Yeah. Um, um, so we, we want to be empowering people with accessible, simple, not simplistic, but simple tunes. The sort of thing that as soon as you hear it, you remember it. Um, a lot of these tunes that are built around dynamic with a very bland melody. Um, once you step out of the room, it's hard to remember the melody. The dynamic is what lifts you at the time. So biblical, accessible, is it relevant? What's it prophetically, what's it saying to us in this moment? Is this a song for us for now after three years of pandemic and a war and uh, soaring fuel prices? What, what's it got to say to that? And then beautiful. Um, I think beautiful lyrics and a beautiful tune together uh, really multiply. And uh, I, I'm not um, afraid of emotion in worship. I love feeling moved by worship. I cry a lot. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm, I'm pursuing emotionalism. Um, uh, it's just about worshiping God, body, mind, spirit and strength, heart and soul. It's being in an integrated human being in worship. Uh, so is it biblical? Is it accessible? Is it relevant? And then that beauty, is there that the real harmony with, between wonderful lyrics and a great tune? You, you're doing a lot to help your congregation if you go, you know, through that. Dave, can I ask a follow-up? You mm, yeah. mentioned there about maybe loving emotion and loving being moved, but not pursuing emotionalism. And I suspect <clears throat> this... Walking, getting the balance right on that, or or, or making sure that that one doesn't cross over into emotionalism is probably a big challenge, both for 
worship leaders who are leading a congregation wanting to be responsible, but also not be, uh, you know, just completely dead uh, in the way that they're doing it. But also just for people that are in worship, they prob- they want to be, I-, I imagine there are a lot of congregants that want to be moved by the things that should move us, but mm-hmm. also don't want to be carried away by their own emotions. I'm curious how just you as a worship leader try to govern that. How do you how do you try to keep a congregation or even keep yourself from moving into, yeah, just emotionalism? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the big things we've found as a tool for that barb bit of song selection is simply saying, folks, if you want to suggest a song for us to look at this year, just print out the words on their own. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do the, do the words on their own move you? Um, and then, uh, and are they, are they biblical? Show me where they're biblical and mm. whether they're th- either theological or directly biblical. And if that, if that's moving you, then you're not responding just to the emotional manipulation of the chord structure and the dynamics. Um, it, it's all, so it's about intent. Um, are you, if you're intending to create an emotionally heightened state, by pursuing the high point in the dynamic of the music, then you're pursuing the emotion for its own sake. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're responding to those lyrics in harmony with a tune that appropriately rises at something fantastic, yeah, then that's I think that's great. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I, it, well, one thing that struck me as pretty interesting is you mentioned you introduce eight songs a year. Is that too, is that too much? Is that right? too little? <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, I think that that sounds like a pretty tight canon with a little valve in it that every six weeks opens a little bit with some more. I wondered if you could speak a little bit about uh, why why eight and not twelve? Why eight and not uh, four? because of summer holidays and stuff? You know, if you try and teach it when everybody's away, then most people will come back and go, oh, is that a, one, a new one? Now, that's, that's eight that get a lot of attention. So that would be eight that will get um, two morning services and two evening services in one month to really ram it home, mm-hmm. to give it a fair airing. Because, you know, I at 50 now, well, older than 50, I'm becoming more discerning, stroke fussy stroke grumpy um, <laughs> about a load of new stuff. So I, my my core reaction to something new is mm, just another new song. Um, whereas if you get four weeks, if you get two or three out of four weeks that you hear it, chances are you give it a fair hearing. But but there's lots of other stuff that just creeps in because this, you know, it, it, we're not, there's nothing Stalinist about the way this church runs. It's uh, they're young worship leaders who of a Sunday evening when there's more time, when you're not, you're not rushing to accommodate kids ministries and stuff. There's stuff that sneaks in. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this is, that's more it that we really focus on for a particular reason. And then, and then outliers come in, take us by surprise. Yeah. What, it sounds like you're talking mostly about relatively new innovations in music or relatively new creations. Um, do you have any opinions about using old hymns or even uh, versions of the Psalms in music versus new creations? Do you have any um, thoughts about that? Uh, 
I don't have any principled views on that. Um, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, I think they're all in there. I think that I'm sure you've had lots of conversations about how the Psalms probably tap on a wider range of experiences and emotions, like lament, which, which contemporary worship music is thin on. And I think that's because contemporary worship music um, in general, particularly from large um, organizations or large churches, the focus is on celebration. Um, and so I, I, I am getting a bit tired of songs that cut straight to the victory without showing you the battle. You know, mm. um, I think they're emotionally... Uh, two-dimensional hmm. and and they don't always relate to people's real life experience so it feels great in the auditorium when you step out the door and and you're changing diapers maybe not so much um uh, so but that's that's my view of of the uh, current trend and there always will be trends um sam simpson spiritual songs we're we're probably in a season in our church where um we need to revisit a lot of older hymns as if they were new songs. Mm -hmm. We probably have a generation now who, when you mention uh, secondary hymns, sorry, you know, not the top 20 on CCLI, mm -hmm. will go, haven't heard that. So as well as teaching eight new songs, we should, we're working on a back catalogue of older hymns from hymnals. Um, and... Uh, I, I, th they, they would not be Psalms from the Presbyterian hymn book, the third edition that we, I grew up with. Um, even when I was a kid, we weren't singing them that much. Um, mm -hmm. there were a few core ones like the old hundreds and so on. Um, and there would have been a, a staple seven or eight tunes that you could have, um, used with the paraphrases. We had paraphrases growing up. That, so Psalms tend to be in there by default, in the form of spiritual songs that are based on psalms, mm -hmm. but we're not deliberately seeking them out, and that's that's probably an area for us to review. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's then it's a mixture of hymns and spiritual songs. After that, um, uh, one probably one older one typically, and then the rest would be a mixture of mod hymns, modern hymns and a couple of devotional worship songs, you know, Paul Blosh stuff or whatever, even some okay. Hillsong, um, some occasionally Bethel, um, Elevation a little bit. Okay. So, yeah. Hopefully, yeah. Um, I think there are times, uh, you know, our 20-somethings can get a bit frustrated with a Sunday morning and uh, our 70-somethings equally frustrated. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's been anybody else's experience uh, trying to bring the generations together. Oh yeah, mm. I will yeah. say I'm now I'm, I'm in a church now that um, there's not really any arguing <laughs> about the uh, music because they only sing songs, and so it would um, be like if if you did anything different, um, I don't know what would happen. You'd probably get in yeah. trouble, but uh, it I, it just. I think it's something that whether or not people have strong opinions on it, they they've just kind of made peace with the fact that that's what the church does. And so there's no, the, the only, um, 
uh, editorial aspect of it is when the pastors pick the psalms that are going to be sung that Sunday, they're usually relevant to something that's being preached. Yeah. And then, you know, like it, it wouldn't really make sense to be in a church that only ever sang psalms on or on principle. And was this was like a defining characteristic of them. Uh, and then to be upset about, you know, one or the other psalm or the style or anything like that. So particularly if it's a fight between two bits of inspired scripture, you know, although I, so this might make me uh, a bad Presbyterian. I would personally um, make a distinction between the inspired scripture and even a very close transliteration of it into yes. singable English. I, maybe that would upset, ruffle some feathers, but I doubt that, those feathers are even listening to this podcast. No. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah, I mean, you could have a debate between, you know, whether singing an English translation, which is the most accurate, or whether you should yeah. be singing in Hebrew, and whether it uh, should be from go. the Maserat, Masoretic text or the Septuagint, or, yep. you know, so you can keep splitting those hairs, I think. So. Yep. Yeah. That was actually my first, this is a little bit of a tangent, sorry, but... That was the when I had my first meeting with a, a minister in this denomination, this very exclusive psalmist. Um, I said, "Well, if you're so keen on this, uh, there is poetry in Hebrew. You might as well just sing them in Hebrew, and you'd have all of this elegant poetry." Um, yeah. And uh, I, I didn't win that. Uh, I, I didn't persuade him with that, I should say. But um, David, to kind of bring it back to uh, our interview here, what? characteristics of worship music or maybe worship leading in, in quotation marks there strike you as interesting or uh, maybe perplexing or odd? I do think um, because um, the social media side of things is able to promote music that has come from the worship music industry um, that the inevitable constraints of how that industry has to work to be sustainable impact on the range of music that we're exposed to in the church. I mean, I think if you believe what First Corinthians 12 and 13 say about the, the church being a whole body, I think you can expand that not just to talk about the local congregation, but the, the whole, the, you know, the global church. They, because the church is primarily not those big focal points that get all the attention. The church is primarily gatherings of 100, 200 people, 50 people. The, the church's strength is its weakness and its smallness, not the big stuff that we see on YouTube. And yet the in, for the industry to work, it's easier to, for them to focus on 50, 100 artists or churches or ministries and expect them to constantly produce the best of the new stuff. I, I, what about there being a gold mining model instead of a instead of a artist development model? Because if 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 there's somebody in the church around the corner from you who's been through something um, that has defined their character over 40, 50 years, and they have one good song in them. Maybe the whole church needs to hear that song rather than an artist who's been asked to write yet another album, but who doesn't have a song in them. And they're just writing it anyway. And it becomes trite. 
Um, that, that's a tough ask for them. It's unfair on them. And I don't think that values the church enough. So I think the, church, the, the Christian industry, music industry maybe has to look at being more biblical and less like the music industry it's a subset of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and empowering and drawing from the richness of the whole church. Um, uh, and then about how we do worship, all that, I think that we've sort of touched on that already. The, to what extent do, do the musicians have to be the focal point? I mean, <coughs> I really don't think it's all that practical to have the musicians get off the stage, but I like the heart behind that statement from my yeah. friend. Um, so, yes, it's about less of that, um, the musicians being the focal point. And then I, I just don't like the under th- underlying theology of that idea that there's a certain sort of song that if you do it in a certain way, mm. it makes an encounter with God more likely. I think yeah. that that is entirely God's gift. Um, and there's nothing you can do to contrive that. It's actually quite a pagan idea, right? That if we, if we can, you know, I'm a Roman historian, like this is classic, you know, pre-Christian religious ideas. If we can just, you know, do this thing in the right way and, you know, discern the right thing and, 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 you know, dance in this direction. Build a ziggurat and call the God down. Yeah. Yeah. Not, that's not where the Bible's at, like. No, no, indeed. I don't. I don't think anyway. Um, no. and it's it's born from a, a a healthy desire to encounter God, but but I think where sure. we um, confuse the emotions that we experience when we encounter God with the encounter itself, yes. then the emotions become an idol because you're mm-hmm. pursuing them instead of the God behind them. Um, yeah, I mean, and I'm also convinced that it's it's can be about trying to control God too. It comes from yeah. this innate sinful desire to uh, to make God do our bidding. So it's less yeah. about one of the one of the wonderful things about Christianity is that it shifted people's thinking over to uh, not trying to to manipulate God or control Him but to learn about who he is and what he's done, right? God, Christ is the, is the center. It's, we need to learn about, we need to learn about him. We need to understand what his mission was. And, you know, you get this development of theology and orthodoxy. These are all, um, these, these really come into the fore with Christianity and, uh, with, you know, pagan religions prior to this, it is very much not about the gods and sort of, it's, it's not about, um, right understanding of the gods there are you know in in roman traditional roman religions for example you've got all sorts of myths that contradict each other and and that doesn't matter to the roman mind because it's not really about knowing who god is and who the gods are it's about manipulating them really the focus is on the right sacrifices the right music the right again the right kinds of movements uh, the right kinds of divination and the right words that you say and that sort of thing. And it's all about controlling God. And it, we have to be careful as Christians um, because those sinful tendencies can creep back into our our music where we feel like we have to do th- do things a particular way to muster the presence of God. And that's that's quite dangerous, right? That's mm-hmm. that's moving into yeah. trying to control and manipulate God. I, I, think, I think the flip side of that is... Uh, um, that we can do that from a reform pers- perspective as well. You know, we c- we can mm. think that, well, if I only write a really theologically sound oh, sure. song, that pleases God. 
but that mm. doesn't please God either. Mm. You know, it's it's a contrite heart that pleases mm. God. And sometimes the best theology is um, have mercy on a sinner like me. Yeah, mm. indeed. You know, um, and yeah. so so um, th- there's a theological um, professor here. Desi Maxwell, and he came to our church once, and it was a he preached a mind-opening sermon for me. He said, "We, by nature, in the West, in Europeans, Americans, we love the the thought process of dichotomy, of um, you know, the parliamentary system of debate. Put two ideas against each other, let them fight it out, and let one idea be the winner." But the Jewish way of thinking is much more about a set of scales and getting balance or harmony or shalom between two ideas, which uh, getting nuance rather than victory. And so I don't think it's about good theology or an emotional um, encounter with God fighting it out. I think it's about mm. finding the appropriate harmony between those. You could even idolize that, I suppose. But yeah. uh, are there any um, directions that you would like to see church music take, Dave? Um, yeah, I I do think we've seen a McDonald'sizing of worship. Is that a word? <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you mean by Sorry that? By that. Yeah. I, I a homogenization of it. Um, okay. So somebody has said this this particular style or range of styles equals worship. And I just love that idea of diversity and something that's an expression of the local church. So, you know, if there's somebody who plays the bagpipes, try and integrate them, um, preferably from the vestibule rather than inside the church. Sorry, that's, that's unfair. But, um, you know, choose music that reflects your roots. I, 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 um, if, if you, if you go up half a mile from my house, there's a hilltop and it's got an embankment on it and a circle of trees. All the hilltops around here from 500 BC through to about 700 AD had these hill forts on the Iron Age hill forts. Um, they were the best locations for spotting somebody else to come and steal your cattle. You could herd your cattle into the enclosure. They were safe. That's where your house was. You'd all of the old houses have the best views. And I think it's sometimes the same with music. You know, if it's if we're so focused on going forward, um, what about digging into the past and going, there's a great melody, there's a there's a great set of lyrics. Um, we wouldn't have Be Thou My Vision uh, as in its current form unless somebody in about 1912, 1920 decided to put those old lyrics to a more recent tune, you know, mm. so to go, sometimes you have to go back to go forwards. And I do think a lot of that, the old melodies that are embedded in our heritage and our culture, um, have the best tunes, you know, cause they've been road te- They were road tested when people went from house to house and sang sometimes even without instruments. So mm. they had to be good enough, um, they had to be both simple enough and complex enough to engage people. So I think, yeah, dig back a bit. Um, I think that's a good thing to do. Um, well, Dave, as we come to a, a close here, I have one last question for you. And it's, over. Sure. do you have any questions for us as podcast hosts? Ooh, 
Well, I mean, you have you have that hilltop, you guys. You get to speak to lots of different people and get a um, I get an overview of what's going on in in the great Amazon rainforest of Christian worship. So, uh, what's going on in that ecosystem right there? Is it uh, is it healthy? Is it contentious? Is it heading in a particular direction? You think? Or? I think. I, well, that's a tough one to answer. I'm I'm actually glad you asked it because I don't think there's one answer. Um, because, for example, there were about 10 years ago, many different groups that were doing uh, sort of revivals of old hymns. Not, they're not dead hymns necessarily, but hymns with clunkier, older tunes, but brilliant lyrics. And they're bringing these back to life, revitalizing them, reintroducing them into the church. And they become the parlance of certain sectors of the church. Uh, and also, I, I've noticed that big groups like Hillsong, some of the big contemporary groups, I think they took some of the criticism to heart and really did rethink how they write music. Because if you look at some of their more recent music, it is, it's not always great, of course, but they've actually put some thought into the, whether or not the lyrics are biblical, whether or not they're uh, in line with historic Christian confessions and things like that. So you don't have some of the big, errors that you may have seen in some of this popular Christian music 10 years ago. So I think in some ways there's a lot to be optimistic about. Um, and yet at the same time, it's, it's also clear that Christian American evangelicalism and the, uh, the churches that are heavily influenced by that, which tend to be a lot of evangelical churches around the world, um, draw from fewer and fewer pipes it seems they're they're drinking water it seems like you it's either stephen furtick's church or it's uh the one in redding california uh bethel it's either bethel or you're out in um what am i thinking of oh it's either elevation or bethel or hillsong and uh i think that gives me some concern, especially if it's a, a minister who I'm concerned about personally, like, like Fertig, just to be completely clear. Um, not, I don't want to speak ill of, of him because I don't know him, but from what I can tell from the outside, uh, he strikes me as a little bit, the center of that ministry seems to be a lot more about Fertig than about um, the gospel. So and maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, but that's just my impression. So I think there are some causes for uh, excitement and optimism, and then there are some things that we might want to be on the lookout for. Um, what do you think, Colin? Um, I would just I will add something small. Uh, Dave talked about localization. I think there's been potential for that for a long time, especially with new technologies and new ways of distributing and receiving music, what you would have hoped would have happened is this would have led to, yeah, more localization, and maybe it has. But I also think one of the things that it's created is a kind of, uh, I don't know, false localism or something, but or, or maybe more of a syncretism might be the right word, where instead you get larger 
acts, again, the ones you mentioned would be an example, Bethel, Hillsong, Elevation, but probably others too, attempting to look local, uh, attempting to kind of be all things to all people. Um, we have a, you know, just if you see the way that we look, we, 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 we try to look like we could belong in any church. Our musical style, we try to vary our, well, rather than try to vary our musical style, we try to come to a, yeah, Dave said this, a kind of homogenous style that could fit in to any locality, but is not itself local and is not itself organic. And so I will say, I hope, I hope that what Dave is calling for will happen. And that is a kind of true organic grassroots to use you know, I guess buzzwords, uh, music, the, the, the potential is there and I'm not sure how we get there, but, um, this could be a direct, again, all the infrastructure is there to, to make that happen. And I'm not sure what, what, what spark is needed or what, what thing is needed to, to make that more common. I don't know, Dave, if you have thoughts. Um, Unfortunately, as I've discovered, people want to know who you are rather than just sing your songs. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, and so I think that they may, the industry might aspire to that, but go, well, you know, it's, it's a tough sale. And we need to build um, awareness of characters, personal mm-hmm. brands, if you like. So it might be better that they go digging for the good songs from anonymous people and mm. then get recognized and trusted faces to deliver those songs yeah um rather than expecting those trusted faces to make up the richness of the whole church's experience that makes a lot of sense to me and in fact to that i would just add dave i was really privileged to listen to your music and uh i would strongly recommend that uh worship leaders and uh, pastors uh, consider using your music in church. Can you tell people, Dave, where they would find access to that? Uh, thank you very much. Um, I have a small website at kdmusic.co.uk, and I've put five songs on there. Most, you know, I'm a mix of singer songwriter and stuff for the church, but the stuff that's relevant to the church, I've just put half half a dozen songs on there. Something for Christmas. Um, Easter, Pentecost, kids ministry, mm-hmm. benediction and, and Trinity Sunday. Uh, the benediction one's particularly useful, I think, because we can't find any other, any other um, hymn, modern hymn, based on the benediction. There's maybe something, but it's uh, there's not a lot. Um, you know, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, love of mm-hmm. God and fellowship of the Spirit. Most of those... Um, Blessing songs are based on the ironic blessing from um, mm-hmm. from Chronicles, so um, that would so five songs that could be useful to a church mm-hmm. if they look up that website. It's all free; just take it, use it in your church, um, and if they want to make a donation, fine. But they can just take it because uh, mm-hmm. that's my that's one of my offerings to God is just to give it. So um, play away, have fun with it, and it's stylistically very diverse depending on whether it's for kids yeah. or congregations. Um, yeah, the thing that I liked about your music is, I f- well, in addition to just scripture and the gospel being so prominent and, you know, uh, your your music, again, I, like I listened to The Grace, I listened to some of the, the music that you sent. Um, 
I, I thought it was, I mean, these are the types of songs that would receive fives on our on our podcast for sure. But the other thing okay. that I liked about it is I felt that the mu- music was uh, open. So I think a church, if, if we're thinking about localization, uh, these were songs that I thought could be adapted in any context in with different kinds of instruments or not instruments or... Uh, again, different different tempos. I mean, these were the, the the songs that you linked to seemed very versatile as well, just musically and open. So, I, I just I would just endorse and strongly recommend that folks go check those out. Uh, thank you. I I just tried to, to really emphasize very memorable melodies. And mm-hmm. and I think the a melody can carry it, and you can you can play it with, you know a biscuit tin, anything, <laughs> really. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for being on the show. We really appreciated this conversation and hearing a little bit about your philosophy of, of ministry and how you compose songs. And we're looking forward to having you back next week when we talk about Keith and Kristen Getty's Christ is Risen, He is Risen Indeed. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Dave. Thanks very much, Tyler and Colin. Thank you. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.